Hello, friends. It's Deacon Charlie. I want to talk to you about a very special organization called Scent Ventures. Scent Ventures is all about empowering the next generation of Catholic entrepreneurs and executives. They are for people that are serious about their business, but serious about their faith. And they're looking to create this spirit-led entrepreneurial movement that just reawakens everybody to the power of the Catholic faith. They know that entrepreneurship is the way in in today's world. They know that entrepreneurship drives the culture and influences the world around them. So they're focused on giving entrepreneurs and key executives the kinds of resources and things that they need and networking potential that they need in order to come together to build new organizations and products and things that can really change the world. Now, Send Ventures is also having a really important event coming up virtually on November 1st that I want to talk to you about. And frankly, it can be a great place to find out more about Send Ventures. The uh, event is called Culture Clash. It's a virtual event, happens on November 1st, it kicks off at 3 p.m. You can find out about it on SentVentures.com. Now, what is this event about? This is really a dialogue for Catholic founders and executives on building value-based business, but in a polarized climate. How many times in our day-to-day life do we come across difficult issues from the dominant culture where our employees or our constituents of partners, whoever they may be, are expecting us to go one way, but the gospel says go a different direction. How do we contend with these things? And where has there ever been a forum to have these difficult discussions among really Uh, you know, people who are building businesses or who are running already successful businesses. Well, Culture Clash is that event. Again, November 1st, it starts at 3 p.m. Eastern. You can find out everything about it on sendventures.com. There's amazing speakers and resources that will be provided at this summit. I'm one of the speakers, so I can't say amazing speakers, I guess, but there's at least two other amazing speakers on the panel with me. Um, Monse Alvarado, who you may recognize from um, her work on EWTN. She is a headliner on that network and has a show called In Depth, and she's amazing. She's also the COO of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which is doing incredible work defending the rights of all faiths uh, in our legal system, all the way up to the Supreme Court. So she's an amazing person, super rock star, and will bring a lot of value to this conversation. The other speaker is Peter Rex, who, as you may know, is the CEO of Rex Industries. He runs one of the most successful companies, really trying to re- reinvent, frankly, the technology ecosystem, but do it in a way that is faithful to people of values. Uh, again, another rock star, amazing, super successful guy who's had successful secular work, but is now also continuing that secular work, but with a values-based kind of alignment. So uh, Monse and Peter will be on the panel with me. We'll take questions from you. We'll bring our own experience to bear, and there'll be resources for everybody who attends coming out of this uh, summit, out of this Culture Clash Summit. So again, you can register for that right on the Scent Ventures website. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for their newsletters and other material. It's scentventures.com. The event is on November 1st at 3 p.m. Be there. You won't regret it. This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Bridget Richardson, a wife, mother, and executive producer at Max Studios in Houston, Texas. Max Studios is about creating, finding, and delivering relevant content and conversations through a Catholic lens. In this episode, Deacon talks with Bridget about her experience growing up as a Creole Catholic and the significance of intergenerational learning and living in her life. They also discuss the concrete ways Bridget and her husband transmit the faith to their children and Bridget's work at Max Studios. Making sure you're making the right decisions for your children just so that they can have all of the information and know who Jesus is. If they stay close to Christ, Christ is going to guide them in whatever they do in their life. And we're in a world right now where people might leave their family or go do their thing or be like, I'm an individual. I take this page right out of my parents' book. We have to stay close to our kids and help them know, like, I love you. I'm here for you. Not necessarily like just in a friend way, like I'm not your friend. I am your constant. When everything else in your life is going to be up and down, when people are going to leave you, when your heart's going to be broken, when the world is going to tear you apart, I'm your constant. 
This is Living the Call. Bridget Richardson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Super exciting for me, although I'm telling you, this is cup of coffee number two. Do you like my mug, by the way? Mom. I love it. All all of my <laughs> mugs say mom or grandma or something. At least the good size ones. Nice. Apparently my wife just likes to buy, um, you know, big, big mugs. But anyway, I'm working <laughs> on my caffeination. So you're going to have to take it easy on me since Fair. we're doing this show early. Early for me, anyway. <laughs> yeah, over here it's it's 10. Um, but I already got Where, through my first cup of coffee, so I'm good. Nice. Good for you. Where are you today? I am in a small town outside of Nashville called Murfreesboro. Murfree, mm-hmm. not Murphy, Murfrees. Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Yep. Interesting. Mm. <laughs> Where is that in relation to anything that folks might know? Would you say it's a half hour from where? Yeah, it's about a half hour from Nashville. So if from you, Nashville, yeah, okay. Nashville. Yeah, yeah. If you know okay. where Nashville is, or even like, um, it's about an hour, or so maybe a little more from Chattanooga, um, mm. but it's in Middle Tennessee. So full on fall weather. Like today is kind of gloomy, very windy, um, but cold. Mm. How cold? What's cold for you? Cold for me is above or below 70. <laughs> like I was laughing with okay. someone that. I'm, so you're a Floridian. I am yeah. a Houston Texan, like uh, Texas there you go. through and through Houston. Mm. The humidity loves me and my skin and my hair. <laughs> loves my hair too much. But um, yeah, if it drops below 70, it's cold for me. But here it's like 50. Um, beautiful days are in the 60s and, mm. and high se- or mid 70s. Um, but I think today is like 50s, a little bit of 40s too. So chilly. I love it when it gets cold. And in, in, in LA, I mean, right, it's a desert climate. So mm. you'll have, I mean, it gets, you know, in the time, a certain time of season, it actually gets pretty, really cold at night. Like and it'll drop to, you know, the 30s at some point, mm-hmm. um, high 30s and stuff. But then during the day, it can be 85. So there's like these massive swings because it's a desert environment. But I don't know. I, I've always liked that. I've always liked the the sort of swinging back and forth of uh, of climates, but in particular when it gets chilly, I don't know, there's something that just feels much more um, uh, interesting about cold weather, it's or at least w- weather you can layer. It yeah. is, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it like provokes all these thoughts and like you want to kind of curl up and then think deeply yeah, about life. Yeah, <laughs> what is that about? What is that about? That's so true. I don't know, like, I think you know, it's you the clothes. Like I love winter w- winter wear, like I love boots and oh. layering like you're saying, but with that I think comes like... Oh, let me cozy up with a blanket. Let me get a good book. Let me have a cup of cocoa or a cup of coffee or a nice cup of tea. Let me contemplate life. <laughs> like it it's so true. It becomes much more immersive. You know, I honestly right. never thought about that, but it is like it kind of it, it lends itself to mm-hmm. more of those experiences where you could actually derive some some kind of growth, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in one way or another. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you know, you and I had a little brief conversation before we had the show. And there was a couple things that I kind of highlighted. But um, just to kind of set the stage, you like how I did that? Yeah, Bridget? <laughs> I love stage. it. <laughs> um, in fact, you know, funny, because obviously you you are uh, obviously a wife, a mom, mm-hmm. but you're a producer. Mm-hmm. Is it called scenographer? Was that Would that be what you'd be? Like a person who actually would have set stage design, TV, movie set, that kind of thing? Oh. What would you call the person who's involved in the background, like when you were kind of putting stuff together. The scenic design is definitely like a, something all its own. Um, someone who's way more skilled than I am. We did, I did a lot of different things. I was uh, within properties primarily. Mm. So um, like properties master, my title for most of my um most of my professional theater career was properties artisan, which I loved. It sounds so like properties artisan. Yeah. It was like so hip and so creative and I just love the name, but that was the title. That's definitely going to get you some, some, uh, some good conversation at like cocktail parties. (laughs) What do you do? I'm a property artisan, properties artisan, but that's because you actually crafted the things, right? You, you, you made the things that would appear in some ways in, in theater productions, et cetera. Right. Yeah. We'd have to read through scripts and find anywhere where something was like used or held or, or, um, shown Mm. that was something that the actors touched and moved. Mm. So not the scenic stuff around them, but things that were pieces of the story or of the set that weren't 
permanently placed. Sometimes we do permanently place things, but like a chair, we're in charge of that, you know, probably a table, unless it was like integral to the scene design in some way. Um, but then mm. think of all the other things like clocks and weird stuff on the walls and, you know, paper props, you know, all those kinds of things too are involved with that. What, when did you realize that you, what was it about theater, I guess, that, that drew your attention? I mean, cause theater is a weird thing, it, right? Because I love theater. Yeah. I, I really do. And it's, it's just like you said about winter, that mm-hmm. it has this quality, these layers, and then suddenly you're sort of introspective and thinking about a book. Theater, when, when you sit down, this is me, but I don't know about you, but when, when, I, when I sit down in theater and those curtains open, there's this moment of like, um, it's kind of weird to explain. There's like this moment of, of sort of like happiness and you're, you're getting ready for mm-hmm. this thing and it's the suspension of disbelief and it's this like super encapsulated little mini universe and you're like staring at it and yeah. it's just so different than any other kind of visual art. But I, I can't put like my finger on why it's different, but what was it for you or when did you realize that like this is something that's interesting that I want to pursue. Yeah. And like, even what you're describing, like it's completely immersive, right? Like we're talking about like virtual reality and, you know, like even going to a great movie, like when you see a great movie in, in a movie theater, like you can't like actually reach out and touch the person. (laughs) Not that you would do that. That is like, that's a no, no, but like the person is right there. And so theater productions really try to immerse you in that environment, in that setting in any way that they can. So whether it's through props or set design or music or lighting, like those things are all so pervasive around you that if you are, you know, privileged enough to go and see plays or or even be a part of productions like I was, you can really appreciate that this takes a huge team. And there's so many people coming together just to create, Mm -hmm. like just to create these, this like, two, three hour moment for someone where they enter into a world of, of storytelling, of suspending your disbelief. And I loved it. I first got introduced to it kind of by chance. Like I did speech when I was in middle school, but I was more in athletics and sports um, when I was in middle school and then high school, you have to make that choice, right? Or at least I did to choose to be, you know, in theater or do sort of sports stuff. And I was always so grateful. Not a big, not a big overlap there in some cases, no. right? At least that Unless you're Zac Efron, no. <laughs> right. You're like, you're kind of going to pick a lane. Yeah, you have to. And they make it that way, unfortunately, because of after school activities, but you have to make choices, right? So that's a good growth start when you're when you're a young person. Um, so I chose theater, you know, I didn't, I wasn't really into like, I'm never, I've never been like a super competitive person. I love watching sports, but I myself am not competitive. So I was like, Oh, well, you know, I love being creative. I love, you know, the type of people that are part of theater. Mm. They're always like kind of quirky and, and sort of different, um, with all these really unusual interests, you know, that Mm. sometimes I share, sometimes I just really don't. (laughs) We can get into that if you want, but, but, um, but yeah, I was like, you know, I think that I'll have a better high school experience if I do this. And I acted when I was in high school and loved it. It was just so much fun to just, I've always been sort of an introvert and, um, really kind person, but never really like the center of attention. It's just not who I am. And so when Mm. I acted, it felt like you could kind of come out of yourself and be that a little more. And um, I just would have a lot of fun with my friends doing like little skits and and doing dance routines. You know, we weren't great. We weren't very good. But, you know, you could still like learn to tap dance and and be on stage and and perform for people. And then it wasn't until I got to college that it was like the props part like really took over. And Mm. I realized this other layer that you can get into. Do you remember the first show you watched? The first like real theater production, not like a school one necessarily, but when you sat down and watched somebody else do something that was bigger. Do you remember that? Yeah, I the first one and it's kind what of an obscure it? one. <laughs> oh, cool. Even better. Uh, Mine was too. Yeah. Relatively obscure. Yeah. Have you heard of the show Equus? It got, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's very famous in like theater settings. Like a lot of um, sure. college theaters do it because it's a little bit more, um, the themes are a little bit more adult. For, for like them for high school students. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was the first one. And it got really popular like a few years back, maybe like 10 years back when um, when the Harry Potter kid. Um, yeah, Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, I was going to say he was in it. In London, yeah. And, um, that was it, the first one I but ever it, saw. 
and he did it and I don't I don't I know I know of the show I haven't seen the 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 play but he, the the reason that he made such a noise is because there is a part that requires I think nudity right. and he was nude or something mm-hmm. people knew who he is so it's like Harry Potter's naked <laughs> yes. is that is but is but does the show does it like require that or was it just for his uh, iteration of it cuz I don't know well yeah the show in it has this like love scene and people are naked and that's the whole like it's a pivotal uh, point in the show because there's this underlying theme of like horses like I don't want to ruin the show and there's so much like psychology and like weird things happening in it mm. but it's a very interesting show very interesting and so there is that scene where they do have to be nude when I saw it it was a college theater production putting it on and so they wore like the the flesh tone underwear um which conveyed what they needed to convey and it was fine sure but, you know sure. actors they got to take that that one step and you know i've been in plays where people have had to be like nude for different things and um it's interesting mm-hmm. like more power to them i could never do it i could never do that yeah but, that'd yeah. be tough and I, i've never i've never seen anybody fully uh in their birthday suit for theater. <laughs> but um mine was um i want to say that it's hard to remember exactly which one it was but because these were about the same time but i saw um a musical called Showboat. Yeah. Um, and then I saw maybe the Scarlet Pimpernel. I understand. Uh, I want to say it was, it, it was like, and I definitely went to opera too. I went mm. to a, a few operas when I was um, late teens, maybe super or like freshman college years, those kind of things. Uh, and opera is, is also interesting. It, ha- it has some of the same attributes of theater, but I think with opera, because there's, a musical element to it, it can, it can tend more to the performance side than to the immersive kind of like story side. Right. And I think that is the difference with, with, uh, with theater. You, you said immersive and that's true. It is, it is like fully immersive. It's like reality, reality, right? Yeah. Where like there's 3d objects and it's not like some rendition of what reality is. Um, but I was blown away. I was blown away. I was on a big theater kick for a while. And then I went, um, you know, to New York and, I got a chance to see some Broadway things, uh, you know, Phantom. I saw nice. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which was probably like my favorite play. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. That's written by David Mamet. Um, but it's just like, it's a super like everyday story. So it, it, it was relatable to me that it wasn't something in the 18th century or, yeah. you know, with, you know. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was a really cool experience. And for a while there... Because similarly, I'm also an, an introvert, um, even though people find that hard to believe sometimes, <laughs> I but I am. hard to believe, but it's great. <laughs> but I am, That's which is why I'm constantly exhausted. It's like I have to pretend I'm not an introvert, but it's yeah. just like exhausting. But I remember um, thinking for a while, like, oh, maybe I could do this because of the same thing that you said, which is when you're sort of introverted, you want those um, kind of like avenues to be able to um, express yourself, but in a context, right? Like right. if I have to walk into a room with 400 people, Unless I'm like speaking there or doing something, I'm usually the guy in the back. I'm usually mm-hmm. very reserved. People may come to me, but I don't necessarily approach them. But in something like theater, you can sort of for a period of time be whatever, you know right, what I mean? You exactly. could do whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. you know, there's, I'm a huge basketball pan, fan. So like they always say like basketball players always want to be rappers and rappers always want to be basketball players. And I truly oh. believe that like people always want to do things like, theater stuff you know like Mm -hmm. they want to perform they want to sing and dance they want to be silly and things like that but it's it's so outside of themselves and they don't necessarily like want to be a part of the the culture whatever stigma Mm. that is like Hamilton has changed that quite a bit which is awesome yeah but you know I think that people something in them wants to do that like you see all these YouTubers you see all these people who are like putting their stuff out on TikTok on all these social media platforms it's like they want to be performative in some way or they want to be heard or share their story or mm. show who they are. And that's beautiful to an extent. Like I wish people would embrace like theater takes the best of that and turns it into this really compelling story, um, whether it's a musical or, or, you know, whatever, a straight play, anything like that. Um, I think everybody wants to do that in a way. We just have to harness it <laughs> and make it into, yeah. you know, good. <laughs> Was your was your family um, in the arts or were they supportive or kind of questioning about your desire to get into those those fields? No, my family, they were in the arts. My my mom and my brother are artsy, like they enjoyed like a drawing and art. Like my brother, ever since he was like a young kid, he would always be enrolled in like art classes at the university. So my mom just kind of let us, you know, have our free reign of what we wanted to do. 
Um, and we we're mm-hmm. always listening to music all the time. It was always in the background. And I always, I joke with people um, because on car trips, we go on a ton of car trips just, and not far, like Louisiana to Houston. I was born in Louisiana and most of my family lived there and we have family in Houston too. So when we'd make those Ooh. trips, we would listen to CDs like, like, over and over and over. It was like music in the car all the time. And Michael Jackson's tribute CD was like a constant. Oh, nice. And, you know, he's very performative and things like that and the way he does things. But Hugely. Yeah. Oh so gosh. it's always been, you know, when I gravitated toward that, my mom and my dad were kind of like, yeah, do your thing. Like they went to plays and, you know, saw me in them and were very supportive of, um, of that part of my life and embraced my friends who, like I said, were somewhere quirky, somewhere like outright weird and somewhere, you mm-hmm. know, just normal people who um, just wanted to have like love and, and friendship. So did, did you ever think that, cause you have a super interesting background, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you already mentioned you're from Louisiana, but you know, you've got native American background, mm-hmm. you've got black, you've got Creole, um, you're, 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 you're in an interracial marriage. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got all these different cultural influences, do you think that some of that, um, the kind of expressiveness of the black community, the Creole community, a lot of what's going on in, in, in New Orleans, like played a role in some of your, your your sort of desire for expression and creativity? Yeah, I mean, it's got to, right? Like um, I was I was only there until I was in third grade and we go back often to visit family. Um, but I mm-hmm. always, you know, my sister was there, my oldest sister, she was there until eighth grade. And, you know, when you have older siblings, unless you're fighting with them, you want to be like them. <laughs> so, right. you know, yeah, my sister true. too was always very creative. She, she went the band route. I wasn't super into that, but, um, that part of the, the creative like expression and listening mm. to a lot of music, like we listened to a lot of Zodico when we were younger Oh yeah, and just going to family gatherings, it was always on and different people in my family were musically inclined in different ways, but also in art and like, it's just so much a part of who you are. And I, even in our conversation, we talked a lot about food. Like that's a creative expression in what you make and what you prepare for people and having them enjoy it. Like it's the same mindset of, you know, you're creating something for the enjoyment of others, Mm. for your community um, in whatever way that's expressed, whether it's through, you know, an art that you actually draw or like an art that you perform or, you know, food as art. So um, Mm. I think it's just really a part of like Creole culture Um, you know, we love to create and we love to love others and be a part of communities and sort of like show who we are through that. And it's almost unapologetic, like be yourself, be who you are and, you know, give your God given talent and ability to the people around you really. Yeah. A lot of people don't know much about Creole culture. It it tends to be very, um, you know, kind of demographically focused. Obviously Mm -hmm. there's Louisiana. There's also the language of Creole, which, you know, Haitian people as an example speak, and that's sort of a variation of French, but it is a super interesting culture. and And I just love your background in general, because I think it gives you this purview of being able to really, um, you know, kind of understand and take a variety of different inputs because you're kind of built that way where you see, things in, in a lot of different ways, right? Because of this, uh, this sort of, um, background. And and it's, I think it's really beautiful because it gives a lot of depth to, um, you know, kind of how you perceive the world. I didn't, I don't have that experience personally because on both sides of my family were just Hispanic, but I did have an opportunity to live in a variety of different places in the world. And I, I I feel I carry some of that, right. But, but, but being sort of Creole is like this blend of things, which is so cool. You know? Yeah. And I'm totally biased when I say this, like, but so many people when they travel to Louisiana or they end up living there or they visit there, depending on where they're at, of course, they say it's like the best people they've ever met. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's the nicest people. It's the it's the most interesting culture. It's like a, it's like a different it's like a foreign country in the United States. It is. And it's really interesting. Yeah. You're so I love right. It. It's like it's so much of you want that. Like you want people to go to your place and or your hometown and say like, oh, I was welcomed. I was loved. I was a part of this, even though I knew nothing about it, you know, so I, I love it. It's also like it's the South in a way. It's got the some of that same kind of Southern hospitality, et cetera, mm-hmm. but it's not the South, right? It's right. like it's like this internet. It's not even international. It's like uh, I don't know. I need another cup of coffee to come no, up with the okay. right No, it's okay. It's like a gumbo. It. It's like a melting pot of it is. It's a gumbo. Yeah. It is a etouffee. It is definitely <laughs> a gumbo of different things. 
Now, interestingly, it's also like a super Catholic, um, uh, you know, it's a super Catholic backdrop as well, right? There's right. A, there's a there's a deep, deep, deep um, integration of the faith in the in Creole culture, right. and sort of uniquely so in the United States among um, you know people of color, because in a lot of cases, especially the black community, is really not Catholic, right? So it it kind of bucks that trend, and a lot of people don't know that. And uh, I remember, I forget who it was, but. Um, I've heard commentary, right? I've like, I'd never seen black Catholics and it was a commentary of somebody who'd been to Louisiana and went to mass and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh yeah, that's for sure. But, um, this is something I wanted to to talk to you about and just to kind of get your thoughts on it. The idea of growing up in that kind of Catholic backdrop and you, you were raised Catholic, et cetera. Right. So you kind of came into the faith, um, through your family, Mm -hmm. but in such a deeply kind of Catholic culture, yeah. There's um, overlaps, I think, between the experience that I had coming up as a Hispanic kid in Catholic culture, which is it's beautiful. It's everywhere. Yeah, I, I love it. But at the same time, it's like sort of in everything. So in a way, it's hard to see. Um, and you kind of can take it a little bit for granted because it's such a part of the culture mm-hmm. where if you grow up as a, you know, just whatever white kid in Minnesota and you're Catholic, it's like you know you're Catholic. It's like different <laughs> right. than something else, right? So t- t- talk a little bit about that because I think that the, that's really interesting, that kind of backdrop. Yeah, you know, that it's, it's you put it very well, so probably in a way that I've never been able to put for myself, honestly, because I didn't understand until adulthood, like what you said about um, Black people in the Catholic church, I didn't even know there weren't, like I didn't know this was an issue right. in the that's, world. <laughs> Until I was probably an adult, like well into my adulthood that, oh, there's a, there's a problem with black people in the church. Like they're not like everywhere for me. They're not everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, Louisiana's got its problems. Like it's got racism. It's got bad government. Like it's not, it's not perfect either. But I think there is that level of like community and loving people and just all being a part of it that like it's not a foreign thing to say those things about like being blackened in the church and being very proud of it and being accepted in church because it's, it is, it just is. And then I didn't even like, it's so funny being in this world that we're in now, even I wonder, I kind of want to go back to some of like the small town Louisiana places where I grew up and see if people even care about like some of the problems with Latin mass or like traditional young Catholics and what they think versus like how many people are leaving the church, because this was not, this is just not things that you think about there. It's not a part of who I was growing up, a part of my, my worldview of the church and, and growing up in the church as Catholic was family, food, mass, rosary. Mm. And it was like ingrained in everything that you did you know, there's a kind of like a resurgence to have like a focus on liturgical living right now. And I mean, Louisiana, I mean, my, at least where I grew up in Lafayette, like they got it. <laughs> like they don't need this resurgence because it already is so much in the fabric of your innermost being that to think of that as separate or even, you know, introduce yourself as Catholic seems silly because you are an integrated person in Jesus and you are loved by God. And, mm. you know, it's just, it's so, I don't even know how to describe it. it. seems so foreign to someone who maybe has never experienced that type of integration. But then like for me personally, it's been difficult to help others understand that, no, you can like encounter someone without wearing like that Catholic badge so aggressively. Um, if it's just a part of who you are, if it's just in everything you do, if it's literally, you know, in the way that you carry yourself, you know, it's, it's a completely different way of thinking about the way mm. that you come in contact with the world. When you were coming up, was there a moment when you were coming up in the faith in particular, mm-hmm. was there, and you started kind of moving around. Cause I know obviously mm-hmm. you're from Lafayette, but then you went to Tennessee for school and you moved to Texas and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Did you have a moment of kind of like cognitive dissonance when, I mean, to the point that you just made a second ago, you had to start like articulating Catholicism as separate than your culture? In other words, you talked about food and sort of the simplicity of that cultural backdrop Mm -hmm. and how you just were Catholic. It's like part of everything. It's 
part of your food and part of your music and part of your family meetings and all this other stuff. But as you kind of start coming up in the faith and you have other interactions with people who don't have that mm-hmm. and you had to sort of like identify your Catholicism, was there a moment of dissonance where you're like, wait a minute, I'm now sort of explaining an aspect that I've never had to sort of talk about that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I remember having this moment when um, I started, when I attended youth group for the first time when I was in Houston, because I didn't do even like, like throughout, I, I wasn't a part of youth group. Like I went to church. I just, youth group wasn't really my scene. <laughs> I wasn't super into it. Um, and I remember I my, one of my best friends started going it's kind of to like church. It's, it's kind of like church band. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. That's why I wasn't, that's why I wasn't your speed. I get it. I get it. <laughs> but it, you know, I, it just wasn't, maybe I wasn't old enough to understand that when I was in Louisiana, or maybe it was just my own worldview, like wasn't formed enough, but so much of what I did at church revolved around what my family was doing together and what like literally extended family, like my grandmother and my aunts and uncles and cousins, like what all of us were doing together at church or if there was a bazaar or something. I didn't really attend like youth group, like, oh, this is your space for you only to have fun and talk about God. So when I went to that in Houston Mm. for the first time and they were kind of explaining these things, it felt really weird for me to have to like, think about it separate from like when I go to school and who I am at school Mm. and how that's Mm. the, like the norm for the people, other people who are around me, it just felt weird. And it didn't really, I couldn't really express why I didn't enjoy being there, but it seemed like even, you know, some of those kids went to my school. I saw how they acted in school versus how they were acting in youth group. I'm like, you're the same kid. Like, (laughs) how are you like a perfect saint here and having a great time? And then at school, you're like, you know, being a bully, like this, this doesn't make sense to me. And so I wasn't super into that and the posturing of it. Right. I guess that's probably the best way to describe like this Catholic posturing that sometimes happens Sure. was probably the most foreign thing to me because it just was not in the person of Christ. It's not how I was raised. It's, you know, my, my mom, I always, my mom, an example, cause she's the, my perfect like model of like Catholic faith and hers is understated. Hers is, you know, prayer time where she goes to her inner room. Hers is mm. praying constantly for her children and, and everything oh, yeah. that we do, you know, it's, it's that um, that pervasive faith that just like does all of the extra stuff that you don't see. I'm convinced that uh, when we get to heaven, God willing, that we'll get a chance to see every person who ever prayed for you. Like you'll be, you'll oh, become man. aware of that. Yeah. And I think in my case, like 87% of the prayers will be my mom. <laughs> Same. You know what I mean? Yes. Absolutely. So I totally, I have, I have kind of mixed feelings about the whole youth designation of anything Catholic. I mean, there there are some things that make a lot of sense, right? I mean, you've got, you know, the rites of initiation and the sacraments and you've got confirmation and and settings where it makes sense that people would be, uh, you know, kind of educated and um, accompanied in a particular way Mm -hmm. because of their age. But I got to be honest, when I see like, um, I don't know, like youth Bible or, Mm. you know, the catechism for young people or all these different things. I I just have this really allergic reaction to it because I remember when I was that age and somebody presented me with something that said like, you know, the blah, blah, blah for kids. I'd be like, well, wait a minute. Like it just, it seemed like a caricature in a way of what the thing actually was. Right. And, and I don't know how effective that is. I think that that's us maybe as Catholics taking a cue from the marketing world and kind of executing it poorly mm. because I look at these like youth experiences in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases, and they yield what you just suggested, which is kind of like kids will behave well for five seconds because they think they're in a context where they need to, but they're not really taking anything on board because right. it's not... It's something like a grown-up made because they think it's going to communicate with you. And I just think in a way that's really cringy. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I just, I, I have really mixed feelings about that whole like youth lens when we, when we extend it too far. Right. And it's so hard because there's that fine line, right? Like every night we read the storybook Bible to my daughter, she's three years old. So yeah. that 
is great for setting the foundation of she knows the story of Joseph and, you know, his dreams. And then she knows who Jonah is. Like she just says she can request which Bible story she wants to read at night, which is such a gift. So like, when do you start to introduce her to the meat, right? Like she's had her milk. When is that next step of when she's ready for more solid food? And I don't, maybe, maybe the Catholic church isn't very good at answering that question because Mm. I know for my, my life, my most formative experiences of like when I've taken great strides in my faith have been in interge- intergenerational settings. Like, of course, I can learn something from my peers or we can talk through things or whatever. But it's always, at least for me, when I've had someone shepherd me who was at a completely different stage of life, who had been where I was, who could guide me in a way, or maybe it wasn't even advice, like just someone to listen who wasn't going to try to give me advice, like maybe a peer might even, you know, like they could just understand. And even, you know, my husband and I now, we are like, okay, we want intergenerational learning for where we're at because yeah, we could go into like a young marrieds group, but they don't know anything either. Like yeah, where it's we like, are, it, we want we want that intergenerational message so that you know older people see what it's like for us now because it's so different than when they were raising their kids, and we want them to still tell us it's gonna be okay. These are the things we went through, you know, in the seventies, eighties, yeah. whatever. You need that dialogue and that transference of wisdom. The secular version of that is called mentorship, right? right? Exactly. And it's exactly. like universally, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, agreed that it works, right? And and I think you said it perfectly. I do think it's always milk than meat, as St. Paul said. But, I, but, you know, but then I think about the Psalms and the Psalms say, you know, ask your elders and they will tell you, ask your fathers and they will show you. Mm-hmm. Like there is this sense of, um, I have no, obje- <clears throat> no objection to that because I think it works. But I guess where I'm, the equivalent that I'm making is, a setting where it would be like, well, you're 12, ask the 12 year old, you know what I mean? (laughs) Because, or, or, or we in our forties or fifties or sixties will create some way of pretend acting like we're 12 Mm. in order to get you to, to connect. And there's just like a, a weirdness there where I don't think it, it, um, it connects in the same way that kind of true mentorship, true accompaniment, accompaniment works. And like, that is something very natural. Like you're a young couple, you want to maybe talk to a more experienced couple and get the benefit, not necessarily just people who are in the exact same position you are to, to sort of commiserate about, oh yeah, I have that problem too. You know what I mean? It's like, there's a difference in the depth of, of, um, of experience that you can have. Right. Totally agree. Yeah. Did you, um, when you think about like these, um, these ways of, you know, kind of dealing with these moments in your faith walk, whether it's your relationship or, you know, raising kids and all this other stuff. Are you, are you conscious of your transmission of the faith to your family? Are you, are you, are you doing it in a way different perhaps than you were brought up or are you doing it sort of exactly in the way that you were brought up? Like just trying to live the faith and have, have your kids kind of pick up on what you're doing. I think it's a mashup. And even my mom would probably say the same, like there's a lot of active things as a parent that you have to do to make sure your kids get some stuff. Like, you know, you need to go to church, like you need to go to mass, you need to read scripture, but you need to see examples of that in home life, right? Like you need to see your parents care for each other and love each other. You need to see your dad lead prayer at the table before dinner. And I, I told you, you know, right now I live in an intergenerational house. So it's yeah. me and my husband, um, my mom and my dad both live with us. Um, and it's our two daughters. We've got a little boy on the way right now. And Yay. yeah. And my parents help raise my children. Like while I'm at work during the day, like right now they're downstairs watching the girls. Like if you don't accept your own limitations. Like I only know so much as a mom, as a woman, as a wife, like I need my parents. I need them Mm. to help guide me. And if I didn't accept that, it'd be a really tough go. I mean, they probably Mm. wouldn't be living here to start. Right. But life is just so much more difficult when you don't have that, that like gift of the elderly or gift of your own parents in your life. And I always hurt for people who don't have good relationships with their 
parents for whatever reason or oh, or yeah. on the outs with whoever like it's it's not not doable right it's just exponentially harder and you just have to find that person for you who can be that figure to help guide you and if you don't have it it's like you know we see families in America crumbling every second because people rely on their own instincts, their own, the way that they think about things. And I tell my mom all the time, I don't know, like, can you help me? And sometimes she's like, no, you can figure this out. And other times she's like, Bridget, let's sit and have a talk about this, you know? I think it's also an attribute of our culture, though, because our culture is very sort of, um, you know, individualistic, mm -hmm. very much about like, you know, I kind of do my thing. I have my career. I'll have my you know, 2.1 kids. And then yeah. at some point I'll get older, I'll retire and I'll end up really old living in some facility and my kids will visit me every other Saturday. <laughs> like it's super different than, you know, other parts of the world or other cultural experiences where, you know, that multi-generational experience is like at your fingertips. Right. And I think it's by design, I think it's, and I'm saying this because, you know, I, I come from a community that is very much like that. You do too. But I also think that by design, God sort of set it up that way, right? As, mm -hmm. as this, you know, kind of community, this idea of, um, of, of relying on the generations, um, you know, that, that came before us in the living of our lives today. And I don't know if the culture really supports that here. I, I, I just don't see it. I think it's very like, you know, you do you and I do me and yeah. like maybe we interact even. And that's even with family, you know, where, where families looked at as like an obligation. I have to go over to visit my uncle because it's Easter or I have yeah. to see grandma because it's been too long. Like it's not this sort of natural day-to-day -day thing. Right. And it's the messiness of it all, right? Like family's messy and it's not easy. Like everybody's got their stuff. Everybody has their family drama or their issues or, you know, the family member they don't talk to, they don't talk about Bruno, like whatever. But it's, it's embracing <laughs> some of that in a way. Um, and then like working through it with the people who mm. God has put in front of you. You know, I think especially in ministry and doing what we do, it's so easy to like engage the stranger and welcome the stranger and love them with all of their faults, you know? And when mm. you think about family, like literally the people that God brought you into this world around you to do those things is it's not easy. And especially with family, you have to come in contact with a lot of things that are flaws within yourself because these people are, for better or worse, you know, you're like them in a way. What about you overlaps with some of their flaws? What is different? You know, um, how do you deal with that? How do you dialogue with them about those things? Can you, you know, or do you just hit a wall? Like you have to deal with all that and it's not easy. And that's scripture too, though, right? right. Iron sharpens iron. Yeah. We kind of, uh, our culture is one that we want to get away from the other iron. Right. Like we, we just, we want to run, but it's in that interaction. And sometimes in those clashes that you actually have formation and opportunities for growth. And it's like, it, 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 it's a big missed kind of opportunity, I find. Yeah. And like, I mean, I worked for a parish. So like outside of parish programming, if you think about the levels of change within your life, for me, it went from like childhood to adolescence, adolescence to adulthood, adulthood to being a married woman, from a married woman to a mother. And then this weird like change of being from a married woman and mother to also a daughter again mm. and oh, wow, potential caretaker, cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And what does that mean? How does that but look? That's you know, that's super, that's super beautiful because, you know, I, it's like, I see them as different seasons, right? Mm -hmm. that I was preaching at a, at a wedding in Arizona this weekend and um, a friend of mine got married and she asked me to come and preach. And one of the things I talked about matrimony is that, you know, even though it's, um, it's mutual, you know, two people come together willingly that it's not a promotion or graduation to a higher stage of relationship, mm -hmm. right? It's this sort of, you know, intimate sharing, um, et cetera. And that even though it is a life change moment, right. um, which of course it is, that it, it's, it's really more about this new season and the seasons 
Yes, they change, but they also return. Right. right? So it's I didn't make that I didn't make that point in my homily, but I should have. Because, you know, yeah, it's fall right now, but it'll be fall again, even though yeah. it'll be winter first and spring after. You know what I mean? Right. One hundred percent. Because, you know, I'm a daughter right now in this house with my parents, but I'm also, you know, me and my parents empower my husband and I to do this. We're the heads of this household and mm. we guide it, you know. Mm. And with that, we are in charge of our children, you know, and all of these different layers, they unpack things within yourself that you didn't even know that you needed to unpack. You know, like I always say, when I got married, I never knew that I was so angry. You know, I was an angry person Mm. and my husband kind of uncovered that in me. When I became a mother, I never knew I could be so patient with my children. And now that I'm with my parents again, it's this another it's another unfolding of like, oh my gosh, I never knew how much my mother did for us, truly, until wow. you see it lived out every day, right? And and think about it, if you weren't with mom, if mom wasn't around all the time, you would have missed that entire experience, right? That's absolutely. my point about like our culture is like, okay, you're supposed to be, you know, kind of in your own little space and mm-hmm. visit your parents every third week. You know what I mean? It's right. like, you're, that, that's what our culture says, but you'd miss like all of those great opportunities to get that depth of, of meaning in your life. Right. And it's, and I think there's that too, you know, when you go through these things, it's supposed to be easy, you know, or it's supposed to be like an experiment and stuff. And it's like, this is messy. <laughs> like It's like, mm. it's tough. It's, it's day to day, like working through it. But then when you find, if you can start at a place of love and remember who these people are to you, and yeah. especially with me and my parents, like what they did for me, like they raised me, they gave me a great life. They gave me all the opportunities. They accepted me for who I was. They loved me. Um, so what, what do I give back to them? What is my, how do I honor them? at this next stage, you know? Yeah. Well, I think being around and, uh, you know, helping them be a part of raising their grandchildren is a great gift that you're giving back to them. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you something, Bridget, too, about, you know, you know, back to the idea of your children and passing and transmitting the faith. You had mentioned to me before that, you know, even though you were born into the Catholic faith, you had this, um, experience, uh, with, you know, outside of the church, you had a, you know, sort of an evangelical slash Protestant experience that really connected with you and that it was in fact, as you look back, kind of part of your spirituality, um, now, and and was a big part of you getting to where you are. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder how you contend with that with your kids. In other words, if something like that was so important for you, how do you look to address that dynamic within the context of raising your kids Catholic and hopefully I presume wanting them to stay Catholic. Right. So like, mm-hmm. how do you contend with that? Yeah. It's, it's like, it's one of those things where right now I, I, I always tell people I'm in dialogue, you know, you have to be in constant dialogue with, with your spouse, with your family, with God, especially like, am I doing this right? Am I making the best decisions? And sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's hang on, wait, you know, you'll find out later. <laughs> but But Mm. in terms of my girls, you know, and soon to be my son, it's my husband is is a church of Christ. He didn't convert to the church. We were married in the church, but he didn't convert when we got married. And so now when we talk about raising our daughters and what to do, we try to give them like an integrated faith. So making sure we've got the basics, right? Like they know who Jesus is. They know scripture. Mm. And that's where like for the two of us, that's where we come together a lot too. And that's where like a lot of our like decision-making comes from as well. So a lot of times we'll go to mass and we'll go to the church of Christ that his parents go to so that they can both know like what it is to be at a service like that. And then also, yeah. you know, a traditional service, but then you have to be ready for the questions because my daughter oh, is three. Yeah. That's when they're like, sponges, right? Why? They're, Why? They see Why? everything. Yeah. yeah. So we'll be at a church of Christ service and my, my daughter will go, where's Jesus? Mm. You know, because they don't have representations of the crucifix. They don't have, and you know, that there's that stigma, I think, especially um, among some Protestants that like the crucifix scares children or, or they don't know, but it's, it's not that she's like, she sees it and she knows that that's a part of her worship and her, her salvation, which is so cool. Like to say that kids don't understand this stuff, you're crazy. Like 
they get it more than we get it a lot of times, right? They get it at a totally different level. One of my favorite yeah. homilies I ever heard ever was from an old elderly Monsignor uh, here in L.A., I forget what the rest of his homily was about, but I remember this, that he said that he told this story about a uh, a family who had just welcomed a brand new baby. So like what you're about to do mm-hmm. and the three-year-old uh, sister or brother, I forget what, what it was, uh, you know, would go and visit the crib and just, you know, kind of cuckoo at the baby and all this other stuff and whatever. And one day the parents came in. And I don't know if this was a fictional story or a real story, but it was beautiful anyway. But but one day the parents came in and kind of overheard the scene. You know how you do as parents, like, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that so super, super yeah. cute? And and the little three year old was asking the baby, was saying, "Tell me about Jesus because I'm starting to forget." Like in other words, oh. the idea that like when you're the smallest, you're the closest, yeah. right, to God because yeah. you're like operating just under His you know, entire, mm-hmm. you know, being and you were just created. So I always thought that was really beautiful, but you're right. Kids know a lot more oh, than we yeah. give them credit to. If you want, I mean, I'm, I'm from Louisiana and I'm Creole. So, you know, the communion of saints just isn't like this far off thing. Like they're around and they're with us and they're like in our lives and they're like right there. Right. And so I, you know, when my kids were really young and they'd like point to a picture of my, of my husband's like, you know, deceased grandmother and they know who she was. Mm. I'm like, oh, she knows them. She's seen them. Mm, She's talked to them, yeah. you know, like, That's right. or they point to, they kind of look up off in the distance. I'm like, they're probably looking at their guardian angel, you know, things like that. Like they know it's just, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to um, suspend your own like sense of what's immediately around you to like that spiritual realm and, and think about that. But yeah, like transmitting that to, to kids is, it's so special and, and it's a constant, like, it's a constant dialogue between me and Daniel, between, um, honestly, me and my parents, they have their opinions. His parents have their opinions. At the end of the day, it's our decisions, but like making sure you're making the right decisions for your children, just so that they can have all of the information and know who Jesus is. If they stay Mm -hmm. close to Christ, Christ is going to guide them in whatever they do in their life. And, you know, we're in a world right now where like, kind of like you were saying, you know, like, People might leave their family or go do their thing or be like, I'm an individual. It's so important. Like I take this page right out of my parents' book. We have to stay close to our kids and help them know like, I love you. I'm here for you. Not Amen. not necessarily like just in a friend way. Like I'm not your friend. I'm your, I am your constant when everything else in your life is going to be up and down, when people are going to leave you, when your heart's going to be broken, when the world is going to like tear you apart, like. I'm your constant. So, you know, I am in the God. I'm your rider. God is. I'm your ride or die. (laughs) Exactly. You need your kids to know that. But it's super with like you're dropping wisdom bombs because I could tell you're around your multi-generational household because that idea that I'm not your friend. Right. That's one that like we just as a culture really screwed up on. Like, I mean, parents, I see this all the time are like trying to be their kid's best friend. And on some level, I understand that, but you're, that's not what you are, right. right? Your role is to be that, you know, that ride or die. I've got, I've got your back. I'm going to be here forever. Right. And I'm accompanying you on this journey, no matter what happens, but I'm not your like best friend, right? right? We're not like giggling about whatever the, you know, cute new uh, musical act is like, yeah. that's not what the relationship is in its fullness. And it can lead frankly, to a lot of like weird spots, you know, where you, you can forego your, um, your ultimate sense and responsibility and duty of parenthood, um, in in ways, because, you know, sometimes friends will just turn, you know, turn the the blind eye or whatever, or encourage you and, you know, and that's just not what it's about. You know, the ultimate for me is an example from like my mom and my brother, my mom, my brother have this, you know, sons and their, their moms, they have this relationship that is just otherworldly. And so the ultimate like indication for me of a fruitful and like well-founded relationship is my brother was in high school and he was at a party he was not supposed to be at. But there were some things happening at this party that he was like, I am not about this. Like this is getting a little mm. bit too out of control. Like, I don't know what to mm. do. Like, I'm kind of stuck. He didn't drive. He called my mom to come pick him up, mm. knowing he would get punished, knowing yep. whatever repercussions. Because my mom was strict. She was not like, she was not like lay over and just see what happens. No way. And he called her because he needed to be out of that situation. He knew who his, who his person was. So she came and picked him up. 
got him out of there, you know, waited until the next morning to punish him, but said, I love you. Thank you for calling me. That kind of thing Mm. is what... I want to be that for my kids. Like if they are in a yeah. situation like that, who's the first person you call a parent who can get you out of there as quickly as possible, you know, like sure you can call a friend, sure you can call a mentor. That's fine. But if you knowing the repercussions of your actions and being willing to accept that, taking that responsibility with a parent, that's huge for who you are as a person. Mm. Yeah. Who are you going to call? It's not the Ghostbusters. Right. And and it's not the mentor who's probably going to tell you you did something wrong, but it's okay. You can work through this. No, you call a parent who's going to say, don't do this again. Here Mm -hmm. is what you get for doing that. But I love you. And I'm going to be there for you. you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's super beautiful. Bridget, before we get to our kind of final segment here with Wait What, (laughs) um, I wanted to also give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about... um, you know, your work at UST sure, yeah. and, and specifically like, cause you guys are doing a ton of stuff. You're involved in, you know, the, using all of your talents that we've spoken about from theater and otherwise, and we didn't talk much about your journalism background, but you have that too. Um, but, you know, share a little bit about that work that you're doing and in, in the creation and advocacy of kind of new content experiences and kind of getting, this transmission out in different ways to different people. Yeah, well, you know, we're with Max Studios at University of St. Thomas in Houston, and I'm the executive producer of the studio, and I work with our uh, creative director, Darnell Miller, um, who's been on this podcast before, who has an awesome episode. If you haven't listened to it, it's great. (laughs) Um, But we work together on these projects, and we basically call ourselves reverse missionaries, right? Like going out into the world, seeing where Jesus's light is already shining, it's already alive and well, and kind of like highlighting that and bringing a camera and saying where to point it and and making some really cool content in the process. So we do videos and podcasts and we love collaborating with people. We love partnerships and working with people in that. So, um, you know, we just recently got done filming on a farm with Leah Darrow in Missouri, um, talking about how she and her husband, Ricky, like threw away city life and mm-hmm. they're going back to the basics Who's- of farm life, right? Who's also been on the show. Yeah, she's she's got a great story. Yeah, it's incredible. And now it's the next phase of their story, right? Like it's that next iteration of it. Um, from that to like helping out people in our archdiocese, like creating videos for our Cafe Catholica, like the young adult conference that's there um, once a year where they have hundreds of young adults come and hear these speakers. Like we create videos for them so that they can have content to show that's quality, that's good, that hopefully, like you said, like Mm. in our prayer to start this, like resonates with that one person who maybe doesn't see themselves in a lot of Catholic content or doesn't hear the right message or whatever it is like that the Holy Spirit uses that to get them to know Jesus more. And so, Mm. um, you know, thank God we just won two awards, two Marcom awards for the work that we're doing. Um, Super pumped about that because, you know, like we said in our newsletter, some random person on a secular committee deemed our work good. They said it has value. And that means something. That's huge. Are you kidding me? Big I, when you're in the evangelization world, you know? I sat, I sat down with Jonathan Rumi um, for a chat about three weeks ago, the actor who plays Jesus I'm in The Chosen. I'm obsessed with him, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a great conversation, but there was a moment where I told him I was like, "Listen, um, when I first saw, I think it was like the end of the second episode of The Chosen, because mm. I watch Catholic stuff reluctantly. I'm going to be honest with you, because it's like most of it is pretty bad. And I told him after that second episode or whatever it was, first or second episode, I turned to my wife and I said, "Oh, I get it. It's like if HBO did the story of Jesus." Yeah, <laughs> and I and and it's like that. And when I told Jonathan that, you know, he's literally like, it had a smile like from ear to ear because it wasn't that I was congratulating him. It was that he got what I was trying to say. It was this, this secular thing, which qualitatively generally is significantly better than Catholic media expressions. Like the recognition that it's at that level, and I'm using air quotes, at that level, right? Absolutely. But it says something. Same for you, right? Mm -hmm. With those awards, it's like, that's not like the award from the deanery of the diocese. (laughs) It's like the award from like a secular organization going like, this is good. I don't care what you're talking about. And it was that, that means a lot. Yes, it does. Like when you, when you are literally doing everything you can 
to live the gospel message and be Jesus for others. Jesus was in those places doing his thing, being himself, like loving people. If if you can do that in a digital space or whatever your your platform is, if you're in theater, if you're, you know, in in shows like Jonathan or whatever, like if you can do that and do that well with the Holy Spirit guiding you, I mean, of course it's going to be the Holy Spirit working, going into the lives of the people viewing it. You know, people will see it and see, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't even think to open a Bible. <laughs> and then I saw mm. the chosen and I'm like, is this correct? Are they, are they doing this right? And you right. actually go and look yeah. for yourself, you know, like that's, whatever works. That's incredible. I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. We'll, we'll put all the, uh, the info for, um, for Mac studios and links and stuff in the show notes so people can, can check it out. And like I told Darnell <clears throat> earlier when he was on, I just so dig what you guys are doing. I think it's awesome. And if there's, I don't know if there's more ways to encourage you that, you know, count on me because I, I really think that it's super special and it's really well done oh, thank and you. we need to do a lot more of it. So, um, and I want to thank you for, for, uh, for coming on the show and spending some time with me. It's been, it's been really great to get to know you more. So thank you for that and for everything that you do. Yeah. Thank you for letting me talk about this. I don't get to talk about my intergenerational living as much because it's not a part of my job, but it's, it's, it's a huge part of my life. So I I appreciate it. It is. I'm glad you did. All right, Bridget, you ready to play Wait What? Let's do this. Let's go. <laughs> All right, let's do it. So, Bridget, I know that even though we didn't talk about it, I know you're a fan of the great William Shakespeare. Yes. And there's been much written about this literary giant. But what many people don't know about the Bard of Avon is that there's good evidence he was a closet Catholic <laughs> in deeply Protestant England in the 16th or 17th century. So, Bridget, which of these clues about Shakespeare's potential Catholicism is false? Which of these clues about his potential Catholicism is false? Okay. Is it is it A, Shakespeare's mom was from the Arden family, a well-known and influential Catholic family in Warwickshire? Okay. Is it B, Shakespeare's dad, John, was imprisoned and tortured for refusing to attend Church of England services? Mm. Or is it C, Shakespeare's daughter, Susanna, was known to be Catholic? And which one which is, of those is false? False. I want to say it's the first one. Shakespeare's mom was from the Arden family? Yes. A well-known and influential. Ah, no, that no. is a, that is actually correct. Yeah, Shakespeare's mom was from the Arden family, and they were reputed to be, uh, you know, Catholic. And there was a term that they used, and uh, I forget what what it is right now, but to identify them as kind of the Protestants to the Protestants. So they uh. protested against the, Pro the the Church of England. No, the correct answer, and it's a little bit of a trick. So I played a little bit of a trick on you, Bridget. But it, 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 the, okay. the, the answer is. The answer is B. Okay. Shakespeare's dad, John, was not imprisoned and tortured for refusing to attend Church of England services, although he was fined for doing that. Okay, I, so thought, he didn't he, I, was go. Like, I thought there was a thing with it. Okay, so. Yeah. He yeah, wasn't yeah, martyred yeah. He, because he did, of it, right? <laughs> he wasn't martyred, but he did get uh, did get a big bill for not going to uh, Sunday services at the Church of England. So, Look at anyway, that, Shakespeare. Um, All right. There you go. Do you have a favorite Shakespeare um, play? Oh, Macbeth. Or work? It's Macbeth, Macbeth. right? Like, oh, yeah. it's so good. Yeah. I love a lot of his stuff, but I I, I just dig the sonnets probably mm. the most. His poetry is super beautiful. Yeah. All right, Bridget, question number two. Now, with your Louisiana background, mm -hmm. clearly you're acquainted with big, easy terminology. The term Mardi Gras, for instance, means Fat Tuesday, the day before Ash Wednesday. And Carnival, the party before Lent, literally means farewell to meat, since we abstain from meat during the Lenten penitential season. Okay. But what, Bridget, is the meaning of the term fey dodo, a Louisiana term folks may be less familiar with? Oh, my fey gosh. Dodo. I feel like my, <laughs> my aunt says this a lot. <laughs> what? Oh, my goodness. The Fado-Do. I don't know. I can't even think of it. My blade is an absolute blank. What is it? Y you still get it right because you're from there. So there's no way you can get <laughs> this wrong. So I'm going to give you. <laughs> I'm going to give you. The, I'm going to give you the point anyway. But Fado-Do refers to a Cajun dance party. Oh. Apparently. And how the term came to be used for dancing is a topic that's uh, debated hotly among scholars because the term, I guess, technically means go to sleep, and it was thought to have been used by moms 
who would put their kids to sleep before hitting the town and dancing the night away. That's hilarious. So, uh, Fado-Do. <laughs> my mom always tells of my daughters, you want to go Dodo? And that means sleep. Oh, there you yeah, go. Even there now, you go. she's like, yeah. you want to go Dodo? <laughs> yeah, so Fado-Do, go to sleep. But apparently it means go to sleep so I could go party. Yeah, all right. <laughs> That's and, and Bridget, you're guaranteed to get the, the third question, oh, right? Because uh, there's always a time, always a time machine question. Well, generally, I'd say 90% of the time there's a time machine question. Okay. And this time it's an open-ended one. So I'm going to leave it to you. Through the miracle of time travel, Bridget, you get to travel forward or backward in time to any place in the world at any time. Okay. So Bridget, where do you go when and how long do you stay? And who do you, who or what do you take with you? Oh, that's so interesting. Does it say I I can pick where? You can pick where and when, past or future. Past or future. But you only get to pick one. Mm. Can't do like, this is my first trip, this is my second trip. So time machine only works once. It's disposable like a razor. Then it it dies. (laughs) So so where do you go? You know, I think I'd go into the future because... I wonder what elements of the past are actually going to repeat themselves in the future. Mm. Um, where would I go in the future? Oh my god. Where goodness. and when? Where mm-hmm. and when? Oh, that's so hard. I'd probably go um, I don't think I don't think I'd want to see like anything like really close to me like what would happen, you know, because that's like a little too close. <laughs> like even my kids I don't want to know. Like I mm. want to I just want to see what happens then. I don't know. I'd probably go into the future somewhere like somewhere in Europe. Like I don't know, somewhere that um that isn't near to me, but to see what the world is like in that place. Like I studied abroad in Italy for a long time. Maybe I go into the future into Florence and see, you know, what art is still like classically nice. there and what um, what do people revere in that place? You know, um, maybe even Rome, like throughout Italy, just kind of travel around and see what's still popular and famous, but what's new and different and, and attractive to people. How far would you go into the future, though? 100 years? 500 years? 1,000 years? Oh, man. Let's do 100 years. Let's go crazy because the world's going to be a very different place in 100 years, you know? In 50 years, it'll be weird, but <laughs> in 100 years, so, it's going to be different. <clears throat> so Rome, 21, 22. Yeah, I'd say Florence. Maybe Florence and then probably go to Rome. Florence, I sorry. I loved Siena okay, when Florence, I was there, too. It's very small. So, yeah. And, and what would you take with you? What I take with me? A journal. You got to take a journal. I'm a journalist. You know, I just jot down everything you see, hear, think about, you know, all that. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm going to give you a, uh, well, I'm not, I can't give you a perfect score because you missed the <laughs> Shakespeare one. So I'm going to give <clears throat> yeah, but you're Creole. So you got to get a half point, I guess, for that. So yeah. you're, it's, it's, it's very respectable, Bridget. Good job. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. You're kind. But. Thanks again for uh, for being on the show, Bridget. It was awesome to have you. And again, our our prayers and blessings on all of your work and on your family and as all of its multi generational uh, beauty. So thanks again. Thank you, for, Deacon uh, Charlie. For being on the show. And if you are listening to our voice, that means, as you know, it is time to subscribe to share this episode with somebody who can draw something from it, and you know who that person is. So until then, we'll see you again next time on Living the Call.